everyone's Michelle and Brayden and this is spooky shit this week we are going to be talking about haunted hospitals I'm going to start and talk about the Utica Psychiatric Center and then I'm going to talk about the Pennhurst State School and Hospital warning this episode may contain graphic details Listener discretion is advised. Before we get started, though, how have you been doing? I'm good. You know, tired. Living your best life? Yeah. I'm, like, <laughs> excited, but also scared for this weekend. Why? I mean, not terribly scared. Okay, but, like, tomorrow? I'm like, give some context. What do you mean scared? No, don't worry. I'll, I'll, okay, I'll okay. I'll tell you. Um... <laughs> And I just know I'm going to be so tired, but, like, it should be fun. Okay, but tomorrow, okay. like, right after work, we're going to meet up at my wife's cousin's house because we're all going to go in, like, a van, and we're going to go to Horror Nights, Universal Studios. Oh, that's why you're – okay, I thought you were – I was thought you were, like, genuinely scared for something. I was like, what the fuck's happening? <laughs> no. Not a haunted theme park. Yeah. Um <laughs> – yeah, her cousin, my wife's cousin and his girlfriend have been trying to get us to go for, like, a few years now. And, like, actually, like, more people have been trying to get us to go. Like, uh, my brother-in-law, Jesus, and your sister, mm-hmm. when they were together, they, uh, like, tried to get us to go, too. And you never went? No, we never went. Uh, we always, t- most of the time, we either never have money or we would chicken out. <laughs> Yeah, I don't, the scary things at amusement parks kind of freak me out because I hate being chased and they always chase you. Yeah, I mean, Alaris is way more chicken than I am. Like, I don't know if you've been to Scream Zone, but. I haven't, because they chase you. They do, (laughs) but she literally died on that and Universal Studios is known for being way more and it's like five times the size. The only one I've done before is Magic Mountain, and uh, they target you if you look like you're scared. So I was uh-huh. the first year. I like literally was like closing my eyes because it freaked me out, and someone ran over and like screamed in my ear, and I'm like, "Bro, really, really? That shit sucked." And then the other years, I just tried to act brave, and inside I was like, "Fuck, fuck, fuck, fuck." <laughs> I don't no, think yeah. I did that again. <laughs> I like the thrill of it. Like it is really scary. Like I low key am a chicken as well. That I hide it a lot better than like my wife does. She can. You just gotta hide, hide it, it so they won't follow you. Yeah, exactly. I know how to hide it. Like I know how to like laugh about it. You know what I mean? Yeah. But she will literally like or get hurt if she looks scared. Run away. Yeah, but she'll literally scream and run away. Like she they're gonna like they're gonna hoard around her and get her. <laughs> For real though. Oh poor Laris. <laughs> But yeah, we're all going together. Like we're all going in a van. My sister's going. One nice. of my cousins and my aunt. But yeah, it should be a lot of fun. I'm excited. And then, that's um, good. yeah, we're actually gonna spend the night up there in a hotel. Oh, that's good. So you don't have to drive back super late. Yeah, no, we didn't want to, so we were like, Let's stay <laughs> up there. And then, um, on Saturday, I'm not sure like what time we're coming back, but on Saturday we're gonna go see Bad Bunny. Oh shit! Okay. Yeah. Is that buddy mm-hmm. in San Diego? Yeah, he's going. He's gonna play at Petco Park. That's dope. Oh, how exciting! Yeah, we're super excited for that. Even though we got nosebleeds, but it's fine. <laughs> yeah, I think that Kaylani is in San Diego like tonight. No way. Because I remember we spoke about this before, and I was like, "Go with me to see Kaylani," and you said okay, and then like we never actually discussed it, and it didn't happen. <laughs> Damn, I would want to see her though. I know. I've been feeling. A little regretful but not about not getting tickets for that, but it's okay. It's fine, it's she'll okay. come again, I hope. You got right. Yeah, no, it's today. Damn. I'll miss you. Shiwani. Okay. That's fine. I mean I shouldn't spend money anyway. But you talking yeah, about no, Bad same. Bunny just reminded me. <laughs> yeah. Same. Um, <laughs> but yeah, we have Bad Bunny on Saturday. And then I think they want to go clubbing afterwards. Oh, go to the club? the cubes um because because uh her cousin has never has actually never been to a club really yeah because i think he turned 21 when like it was like covid 
Oh, yeah. And, I mean, I mean, he's not really that type of, like, dude either. But he still wants to go with us at least once to, like, experience it. Yeah. I don't think so, I've been to a club since I turned 21. Oh, damn, really? Wait, I'm 26. That's old as shit. Yeah, it was like it was like five years. Actually, my 21st birthday, we went to Vegas and we went to a club and we didn't even get all the way inside and I felt anxious and we left. <laughs> I went to 18 and over clubs when I was like 20. <laughs> <laughs> that counts. It does. But yeah, so it's just a pretty eventful weekend on my half. And then on Sunday, I guess we're going to my uh, uncle-in-law's birthday party. But I kind of have to wake up early and go shopping for a wedding that I have next weekend. Jeez. So I'm like all over the place. Yeah. I'm subconsciously a little like stressed about it all because it feels like a lot. But I Don't know be. It'll, it'll be fun, you know? Yeah, I'm one just, thing at a time. Yeah, I'm just overthinking it because it just feels like a lot. Oh, and then also next Tuesday, I think, I'm going to Disneyland. Hey, I'm going to Disney on Saturday. Oh, yeah. You remember you told me. But, I have to yeah. live stream it. You're going to live stream it? Yeah, not all of it. Like 30 minutes to an hour. It was like one of our sub goals from before was for me to do a Disneyland in real life stream. I'm going to pretend I'm on FaceTime. There's no way I'm going to be saying anyone's names. Because usually I say people's names and I like will be like reading their messages out loud. But mm-hmm. some of their names are so... Like, one person's STD takedown. Like, I call them STD. I'm not just gonna be like, oh, hey, STD, how are you today at fucking Disneyland? So I'll just... I already told everyone. I was like, I'm not gonna say your guys' name. I'm gonna pretend I'm on FaceTime so no one thinks it's that weird. True. That's funny. I've, I've never done it in real life stream, so I'm nervous for that. <laughs> That's cool, though. Yeah. Hopefully it goes well. <laughs> yeah, anything else going on besides... Uh, it's Robert's birthday on Sunday. Oh, really? Yeah, he's turning 28. Uh, we are doing D&D in the morning because we haven't been able to do it in weeks. And I told him we don't have to because it's his birthday. And he was like, whatever. He's very, like, because we're, like, don't have much money right now. Especially, like, we're saving to go to Amsterdam in a few months. So we're not really doing anything. We're just going to go out to dinner to, like, this Italian place we went on my birthday that has a lot of vegan food. And I was, he told me, like, since I'm going to take him dinner, he's like, fine, well, don't give me a present. And I was like, fine, but you have to get an appetizer for dessert then. So it's worth it. It's going to make him eat a bunch of food. I'll buy him food at Disneyland, too. That's cool. But, like, it kind of sucks compared to last year. Last year, we were still not unemployment money, you know? And uh, we went to the zoo for a special experience. We got to, like, fucking feed a rhino, pet a zebra. And this year, I'm just like, I'll buy you dessert. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully, next year, it'll be better. <laughs> I miss yeah. the zoo. <laughs> the, that zoo thing wasn't crazy expensive either. We just we already had passes, so it was like $80 each. Fucking would recommend if anyone's in San Diego, do that Animals in Action experience. I mentioned it last year. Still would yeah. recommend. I wanted to do that again, but we'd have to buy annual passes as well, so it'd be like $400. Damn. Yeah, then no, that's... Yeah, it's a no for me, dog. <laughs> Maybe next year. <laughs> Maybe next year. <laughs> that's cool, though. Yeah, that's all we got going on. And we're doing something with this family, too. But I don't know what really. I think we're all just hanging out because it's also like uh, his aunt's birthday as well. I also was doing like this little like community challenge on the stream. I think that the stream I do it full time. I should just start calling that work. Well, no, I just nah. that sounds weird. I was doing it on the stream um, where people could give like I have little like cappy coins is what they're called. It's like our channel points. The longer you're on my channel the more of these little fake points you get and you can do stuff like have me drink water, have me um, go do certain activities in the game, have me play a scary game if you spend enough Cappy coins. And I was doing a community challenge for, it cost 100,000 Cappy coins. People could do 2,000 each per day and it's for me to do an uncapped subathon next month. And we met it last night. So that means I'm going to do an uncapped one. Which some one person in the RuneScape community is doing an uncapped one, and they've been doing it for a week straight now. But um, I don't think it's going to go that hard. I hope it doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> that just means that you're literally streaming for a week, and I'm not. I wouldn't do this, but a lot of people will stream themselves sleeping. What? It's, 
You just see a lump on a bed. I'm not going to do that because I don't think I'll be able to sleep knowing that people are watching me sleep. Yeah, that's a little weird. Yeah. I could technically sleep on the couch and have the camera pointing at me, but I don't think I want to. <laughs> we'll see. If people donate enough subs, I'll be like, sure, I'll sleep on the fucking couch. <laughs> just I'm stare just... at me. Yeah, it's just my anxiety makes me like, <laughs> obviously I'm thinking, what if I shit myself in my sleep? That's oh, a fun brain. Have you ever? No, but this would be the first time on stream, wouldn't it? People yeah. would clip it. I would go viral for being that bitch who shit herself while sleeping during a subathon. <laughs> Yo, there's a girl that um, got in trouble on Twitch recently because she had sex on stream. No way. Yeah, I mean, apparently you could just, it was just like, you could see like her face and like shoulders mostly, but in the reflection of a window, you can see that she's having sex. And she didn't even get permanently banned. She only got in trouble for like a week. <laughs> Why would she do that? I don't know. I think she was probably drunk or something. She forgot she was streaming. She forgot she was streaming, yeah. But big yikes. No one really understands how she wasn't banned either. Like people have been banned on twitch for like really mild shit compared to literally getting fucked on stream <laughs> so <laughs> that's just well. crazy so yeah me sleeping on it wouldn't be that big of a deal compared to that yeah no but me shitting while sleeping could be just as comparable in embarrassment terms i don't know we'll have to see you know there's like uh asmr streamers who have fake ears that they'll just lick what the fuck? Mm-hmm. <laughs> One of the... Leah, before, whenever we were trying to get affiliate, uh, like, literally over a year ago, uh, she was, like, looking at different categories on Twitch because I'd always make her watch my stream. And she saw, like, one that was really popular, and it was somebody who was just doing ASMR, and it was just them licking a mic. Like, it was supposed to be, like, blowjob noises. <laughs> okay. I mean, I was like, nice. <laughs> I mean, they're doing what they gotta do for money, and they're breaking a lot of it. <laughs> well, she. I don't, I don't have the heart for that, but uh, yeah, it's each their own. <laughs> <laughs> Technically, they're making very easy money. They just have to lick a mic. But I wouldn't I want hope, to. <laughs> I hope the mic is clean. Yeah, I know. I don't know how they do it. Like, if they put thing over it, because like, looking at my mic right now, like it has like little protector thing on it like it wouldn't work i don't know how they do it i think they I like the ear and shit i think that they make like special stuff literally for this purpose it's like i i, I don't want to know yeah you don't want to know you're like oh my god that's so gross googling asmr twitch <laughs> you're like let me nah. see the shit <laughs> i'm i'm good <laughs> Yeah, because you can't be, like, nude on it. So people, like, do their sexual things without being too obvious. It's kind of obvious, though. <laughs> but anyway, kind of, that kind of, kind of got really off track. That's what I've been up to. I'm ready for stories. All right. They're not nice. about licking microphone and fake ears. <laughs> yeah, that's... <laughs> Let's change the subject. Yeah. All right, I guess I'll start my story. Cool. So the Utica Psychiatric Center is located at 1213 Court Street, Utica, New York. It is also known as the Utica State Hospital. It opened on January 16, 1843. It was New York's first state-run facility designed to care for the mentally ill and one of the first such institutions in the United States. It was originally called the New York State Lunatic Asylum at Utica, which is like insane, insanely long. Jesus. Also, like, lunatic asylum. Yeah. <laughs> Just wait till you hear what mine used to be called. Shit's fucking um, weird what they used to get away with. <laughs> For real, though. But yeah, I guess locally it was just known as Old, Old Maine. Okay. It was also one of the first publicly funded institutions to care and help treat the mentally ill in New York. It was designed by William Clark. He had one of the finest, I mean, it, is, it does look very, very, very nice. 
but he had good he, taste. <laughs> it's of, I guess, one of the finest examples of Greek revival architecture. Hmm. It's actually very like pretty. Yeah, we will post pictures. But yeah, so it's set on 130 acres of the original design. Um, was to form like a kind of like a square, or they called it a quadrangle. Quadrangle. Quad, yeah, quadrangle. Basically, <laughs> like a square. Yeah. But so yeah, the ideal idea was to have four identical buildings positioned at right angles to each other. Okay. With a basically surrounding a courtyard, so there would be a courtyard in the middle. And this was the quadrangle. Yes. But yeah, its construction was funded by the state and by contributions from Utica residents. But the funding did not last. <laughs> oh. Um, yeah, due to financial constraints, after the foundations were laid, only one of the four structures were initially built. And that's uh, the one building is what they refer to as Old Main. But yeah, the building stands over 50 feet high, 550 feet long, and nearly 50 feet in depth. Jesus Christ. But yeah, it has uh, six Greek-style columns that decorate the front, which is like, it's actually very pretty. I looked it up. It does look pretty. Yeah, it does. I can tell you, after you first started talking about Greek revival, I looked it up. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's pretty. It looks nice. But yeah, I guess the six columns are 48 inches, or not inches. <laughs> That's short. <laughs> Pretty small. It's actually a measure. <laughs> 48 feet tall, and oh. each has like an eight foot diameter. So that's not major at all. Nope, that's huge. Although incomplete at the time, the first patients were admitted in January of 1843. The asylum quickly filled and more beds were needed, so the building was enlarged by an addition of wings on either end. These wings opened in 1846 and in 1850. The accommodations were listed as 380 single rooms for patients, 24 for their attendants, 20 dormitories, each accommodating from 5 to 12 persons, 16 parlors or day rooms, 12 dining rooms, 24 bathing rooms, 24 closets, and 24 water closets, which I'm assuming is a shower. <laughs> they have a lot of closets. That's like my main thing that I'm getting from this. A lot of fucking closets. 24? Yeah. Kind of weird. Kind of spooky. What are uh -huh. they keeping in them? Bodies? Uh -huh. I'm reaching. I'm a little tired. No, this it is a crazy story. You'll okay. <laughs> Doctor, I hope I'm pronouncing this right. I actually thought it was a girl from the name, but then mm -hmm. I looked, looked him up and I was like, oh. His Let's name is his name. Amariah. Amariah? Yeah. You think Amariah Carey? <laughs> Maybe. That's where my mind went. <laughs> it is but, a cool uh, name, though. Yeah, it is a very cool name. Like, I've never heard that before. Me either. I like it. I actually want to look it up to see where it's from and what it means. <laughs> um, but yeah, Dr. Amariah Brigham was the asylum's first faculty director. He was an American psychiatrist and in 1844, one of the founding members of the Association of Medical Superintendents of American Institution, it's Institutions for the Insane. These damn long-ass names. It was eventually shortened to American <laughs> Psychiatric Association. That's still kind of long. But not, not as long that. as that first one. No. That long was one. That person sounded like you were just saying like two sentences. <laughs> was, I kept thinking it was over and then it wasn't. And there was another word. <laughs> so it just kept getting dragged on. 
1844, Dr. Brigham founded the first English-language journal devoted to the subject of mental illness, titled The American Journal of Insanity. Dr. Brigham was the editor-in-chief, editor and the journal was printed in the Utica State Hospital printing shop. After Dr. Brigham's death, the journal became the property of the hospital, and in 1894, the American Medical Psychological Association bought the journal for $994.50. With steel. They couldn't even round it up to a thousand. <laughs> a very specific amount. Right? But yeah, I guess the journal was later renamed the American Psychiatric Journal. Okay. They shortened it because I don't know what it was with these long Because everything used to be so long. Yeah, it really did. Basically. But yeah, the journal was the first of its kind published in the English language, and it, it grew Utica's reputation worldwide as a center of psychiatry. Dr. Brigham believed in labor as the most essential of our curative means. Labor? Labor. Okay. So he basically put work. work. Yeah. <laughs> So yeah, patients were encouraged to participate in outdoor tasks such as gardening and handicrafts such as needlework and carpentry. Dr. Brigham also introduced an annual fair at the hospital to display and sell items created by the patients. The first oh, fair in- I wonder if they got the money or if he got the money. They didn't. Yeah, of course. The first fair in 1844 raised $200, which went toward an addition to the library, musical instruments, and a greenhouse. There we go. They did not get to keep their own money. <laughs> nope. But I mean, it kind of went back to them, if you think about it. It went back to them. But I wonder how much say they had in what they got. True. Very skeptical of uh, any of these doctors back then, because a lot of them seem to do the worst shit. Very big facts. <laughs> but yeah, some of the asylum inmates also printed a newspaper called The Opal, which contained articles, poems, and drawings produced by the patients. But yeah, there's kind of like some controversy on The Opal, just because some say or like see it as a point of view of like that it kind of gave the the um, the patients a sense of like power mm -hmm. for like being able to do all that on their own while others say it was just another form of slavery because they kind of like made them do it in a way it wasn't their choice yeah so it's like hmm, I don't know but apparently the editors of the Opal insist that their writing and publication was their work alone and that it provided certain inmates with a creative outlet. Okay. Which I'm like, that's fair. Yeah. In July of 1852, the old main's first floor stairway caught fire. Oh. <laughs> the escalated. stairway? The stairway. That's kind of like a random part to catch fire, too. Yeah, that did escalate, though. <laughs> <laughs> Patients and staff were safely evacuated, but a firefighter and doctor were killed trying to salvage items from the building. Oh my god. The entire center portion of the building was destroyed. After $70,000 in repairs were done, the main was ready to open his door once again. But what's crazy is four days after the fire at the old main... A barn on the asylum grounds also caught fire. Do they have like an arsonist? Is one of these doctors yeah. a fucking arsonist? Wasn't a doctor. Oh shit, someone was an arsonist. Okay. Mm -hmm. Shouldn't have asked. <laughs> Eventually, a man by the name of William Spears would come forward and confess to setting both fires 
because he was upset with one of the uh, asylum supervisors. Was this an employee of the hospital or just some random dude? Oh, let me tell you. Hmm. William was a former patient of the Utica Asylum who was also a convicted arsonist and would occasionally work in the building. Oh, God. So he used to be a patient and then he started working in the building after he wasn't a patient? Yeah, basically. Okay. And he was a convicted arsonist. And these two fires happened, and they're like, hmm, I wonder who could have done this. He had to and confess. They were like, this is weird. What a coincidence. <laughs> now we get to the creepy part. Oh, God. So, Dr. Brigham basically found uh, existing types of restraints, like chains and like straps, highly disturbing. Mm-hmm. And unacceptable, so he invented something that was later coined the Utica Crib. Uh, okay. (laughs) The Utica Crib was an ordinary bed with a thick mattress on the bottom, slats on the sides, and a hinged top that could be locked from the outside. (gasps) That's a cage. A cage, yeah. That's not a crib, that's a cage. It's basically... If you think about it, like it did ass looks like a crib and a coffin had a baby. Look it I up. I was just, I looked it up. Oh, I already looked it up. At first, I was like, this looks like a cage. And I saw someone laying it. I was like, this looks like a coffin. It's literally what like in a the coffin. Fuck? It's a coffin with the lines of a crib. I just, I think that physical restraints are so disturbing. I prefer just putting patients in coffins. <laughs> You were right. You're right. Restraints are disturbing. Why would your mind go to coffins, though? I don't know. (laughs) Nothing else? No other alternatives? Maybe because they're not restraints, technically. They're just kind of locked in a box. They're just kind of restrained. Restrained, I say (laughs) restrained. (laughs) Restrained. Yeah, this show looks creepy as fuck. Yeah, I don't know. But I guess they they actually, he intentionally made it to where it looked... Like a crib, so there would be airflow and stuff. Oh, cool of him to make sure that they could breathe. Mm-hmm. And next time there's a fire, sorry, you guys are being like <laughs> fucking coffins. Hell no. So doctors used the Utica crib to control and calm patients who were out of control. While the use of Utica crib was widely criticized, some patients found it to have important therapeutic value. One patient who had slept in the Utica crib for several days commented that he had rested better and found it useful. (laughs) Oh, sure, buddy. (laughs) He said, All crazy fellows is I, whose spirit is willing, but whose flesh is weak. Whatever that means. Your boy had some self-esteem issues. (laughs) In the Edinburgh Medical Journal, published in February of 1878, Dr. Lindsay and other physicians at the Murray Royal Institution at Perth recom- actually recommended the Utica crib. Uh. Yep. The coffin? Dr. Yeah, basically. Dr. Lindsay stated that the bed was practical and safe to the patients. However, Dr. Hammond and Dr. Mysert of the Utica State Hospital attacked the Utica crib. I imagine them physically attacking this crib. <laughs> just the bats just like, fuck. No. <laughs> so Dr. Mysert stated that the crib is the most barbarous and unscientific because there is already a tendency to determine the blood to the brain is in excited forms of insanity, which is released by the horizontal position in the crib and struggles the patient. I like my how the issue is not you're locking them in a coffin. It's no, the brain blood. You're too, you're too quick, bro. Oh, sorry. Because <laughs> the Dr. Meiser also compared the Utica crib to a coffin. Fucking damn it. God <laughs> damn it. Why do I keep even saying things? I'm just going to mute myself. God. <laughs> I just have to cut in. 
Dr. Hammond stated that sometimes patients died from being in the Utica crib. <gasps> Some of these deaths occurred when attendants thought that the patients were out of control when in fact they were actually having a heart attack, a stroke, or some other type of serious health problem. Fucking fuck. The cribs were used until January 18th of 1887, when the superintendent, Dr. George Adler Bloomer, ordered the last one removed from the Utica State Hospital. So they did eventually come to their senses and realize. Yeah, they got rid of the coffins. They're like, they actually recycled them and reused them when the patients died. <laughs> Stop. <laughs> Recycle, reduce, reuse, close the loop. <laughs> You're wrong for that. But, like, there's no way I can, like, not confirm or nor deny that. Exactly. What happened to them? Can you imagine going to a fucking, what's it, like a, what's it called? Like a dump site, a junkyard? Just seeing a pile of these fucking caged coffins. Some, like, vampire shit, dude. Imagine she... Well, yeah. I guess there is one, like, a story called Mm -hmm. A Secret Institution. And it's a 19th century autobiographical narrative. Describes Clarissa Cladwell Lanthrop's institution institutionalization at the asylum for voicing suspicions that someone was trying to poison her. She thought someone was trying to poison her and they locked her up in an insane asylum? Yep. Damn, dude. Brutal. In 1978, 135 years after opening, patients were transferred to other buildings and Old Main was closed. It is now unoccupied. Damn. In 2004, a portion of the first floor of the main building was refurbished for reuse as a records archive and repository for the New York State Office of Mental Health. Recycling these views. Yeah. Basically. Other more modern buildings on the large property are in use for psychiatric and other medical care. It has been added to the National Historic Landmark list. It was added in 1989. And I guess back in like 2017, they actually did offer like tours for like, you know, usually regular tours or like haunted tours. No, like haunted tours. Oh, okay. Um, But yeah, I I guess they stopped. And. They're talking about maybe bringing them back, but as far as I know, it's not back yet. But I'm back like, that they stop cool. makes me wonder if there's even a demand for it. True. But yeah, like so many of America's earliest hospitals for the mentally ill, upsetting procedures were practiced on patients. Utica's asylum was said to have staff members that performed lobotomies and electroshock therapy quite regularly on patients. Over the years, stories of horrid living conditions were told, many claiming that the patients who resided here received hardly any care and were left confined in small quarters, aka coffins. (laughs) Coffin beds. But yeah, supposedly... They say, if you explore the abandoned halls of the Utica's lunatic asylum, you can hear the chilling screams. Oh. Others have claimed to have seen faces in the windows of the people who were once patients. Jesus. Which I'm like, I don't know what's more creepy, seeing it or hearing it. Probably seeing I feel like hearing you could explain it away and be like, it was wind, it was a door. True. You see someone's face. I mean, you could try to explain it away, but I feel like... How you're it's just a... a reflection? Yeah, it's just a reflection. There's like five people. <laughs> <laughs> it's just me. But yeah, I'm like, I definitely think it's creepy and haunted. There's probably a lot yeah. of other shit that they don't talk about or like know about that definitely happened there you know what i mean definitely probably tons of traumatic shit 
traumatic murders, like abuse. You name it. But yeah, that's the story of the Utica Utica State Hospital. Such a pretty building that such awful things happened inside. For real, it's actually very pretty. It's very pretty building. Like I was, you would not guess. No, not at all. Kind of looks like it'd be a museum on the outside. True. Not a shit show hospital. All right. So this week, I'm going to be talking about Pennhurst State School and Hospital. So Pennhurst, which was originally known as the Eastern Pennsylvania State Institution for the Feeble-Minded and Epileptic, talking about long names, was an institution for mentally and physically disabled people located in Spring City, Pennsylvania. The hospital itself was opened in 1908, but plans for it began back in 1903 when the Pennsylvania legislation ruled that an institution for the mentally and physically disabled should be open to care for them. And a commission should be created to find out how many of what they called feeble-minded people there were in Pennsylvania at the time. The commission ended up finding that there were a little over 2,800 people in insane asylums, country care hospitals, reformatories, and prisons who were in need of immediate specialized care. With this in mind, the construction of Pennhurst began. The hospital itself isn't actually just like one building. It's a cluster of several buildings over a 112-acre property, with building uses ranging from educational departments to homes for teachers. The campus was said to be fairly self-sustainable. There was even a railroad built specifically for the purpose of stopping there to bring the hospital coal and other supplies easily. The first patient of Pennhurst State School and Hospital was admitted on November 23, 1908. Residents of the hospital were given labels based on three categories. Dental, with options would be good, poor, or treated, depending on the state of their teeth. Physical, this they used to deem them as either epileptic or healthy. And a mental category, declaring residents as insane or an imbecile. The only two options I read were insane or an imbecile. Residents were given jobs to perform while living in the hospital with work industries including mattress making, shoe making and repair, farming, laundry, domestic duties, sewing, baking, butchering, painting, etc., etc. A lot of options, seemingly. Within a matter of years after opening, pensers had already become overcrowded, which of course led to not enough staff being able to care for the patients and neglect of residents. And this paragraph just Super, super fucked up. Just a heads up. In 1913, a commission approved by Pennsylvania legislation declared that disabled people were unfit for citizenship and that they posed a threat to the peace of society, and therefore they should be placed in custodial care. The commission also expressed the opinion that disabled people shouldn't intermix their genes with those of the general population. In one report by the chief physicist of Pennhurst to the commission, he quoted a eugenicist saying, Every feeble-minded person is a potential criminal. The general public, although more convinced today than ever before that's a good thing to segregate the idiot or the distinct imbecile, they have not as yet been convinced as the proper treatment of the defective delinquent, which is the brighter and more dangerous individual. No, you're done. Yeah, it's, it's fucked. It's ridiculous. They just didn't. They didn't even think that they're like people and should be general public. They're like, oh, it's just, it's so bad. It's so bad. In 1916, the Pennhurst Board of Trustees began a plan to simultaneously increase the limit of how many people could live in the Institute, while also in part preventing unwanted pregnancies in residents by constructing cottages specifically for women so that way they couldn't begin relationships with the men on campus and become pregnant. They're basically like, in a way, sterilizing them. It's fucking, fucking weird. In 1968, an expose called Suffer the Little Children was done on the conditions of Penhurst, showing on television just how dire the situation there was. In parts of the expose, the journalist, Bill Baldini, admitted that 
The people employed here are for the most part dedicated, but even the most sincere people can be pushed beyond their professional capabilities. One doctor in the documentary, which I wasn't able to watch all of it, I watched about 20 minutes of it, he admitted to drugging patients strictly so they wouldn't be able to harm themselves or others, not necessarily for treatment. And he recalled how on one occasion he'd been dealing with a resident who had injured a second resident, and he literally requested that he be given the most painful injection possible that wouldn't result in long-time injuries. He wanted to just hurt him. Another employee mentioned that despite the max capacity being around 1,900, at one point the hospital held about 2,800 residents. It may have even gone up to in the 3,000s. Baldini later recalled that he and his crew were so mortified by what they were seeing that they had a hard time staying on the job. He remembered a ward of kids ranging from infants to around five years old, thinking of how, quote, there are 80 of them in metal cages. They had to attend to them every day, all day. These people were literally lying in their own feces for days. In 1977, a judge ruled that conditions at Penhurst violated patients' rights, and by the next year, it was decided that it should be closed. As there were 1,100 residents living there at this time, the process of closing actually took nine full years as each patient, along with their families, had to discuss what was next for them and what new treatment plans they'd be receiving. Eventually, all the residents either moved back in with family or were moved into small community homes. This time, the community homes only had a handful of residents per living arrangement, and they had 24-hour staffing, 24 staffing available. And in 1987, Penhurst was finally closed after years of overcrowding and neglect. In 1981, a Time Magazine article described Penhurst as having a history of being understaffed, dirty, and violent. Over time, there have been several lawsuits and criminal charges brought forth due to the treatment of residents at Penhurst. In 1983, nine employees of the school and hospital were indicted on charges of abuse including slapping and beating patients, some of, whom were in, some of whom were in wheelchairs, and even arranging for residents to assault each other. The biggest and most well-known lawsuit against Penhurst, and actually the first loss of its kind, was Halderman v. Penhurst State School and Hospital. This lawsuit asserted that people with developmental disabilities in the care of the state have a constitutional right to appropriate care and education, and that residents of Penhurst had been denied this right. The suit was filed after Terry Lee Halderman, a resident of Penhurst and victim of multiple instances of abuse, visited her parents at home and was unable to explain several bruises on her body. Thankfully, her parents immediately thought this was suspicious and filed a suit with the federal district court, who later found that the conditions at Penhurst were unsanitary, inhumane, and dangerous. They ruled that the hospital's use of abusive punishments were a violation of the 14th Amendment, which guarantees all citizens are given equal protection of the laws, and the Eighth Amendment, which states that cruel and unusual punishment should not be inflicted upon people. Facts brought forward in the lawsuit showed a daunting image of what life at Penhurst was really like for its residents. Psychologists weren't there on weekends, so if a resident was having an emotional or mental crisis, they could potentially go days until they received any treatment. As they were obviously understaffed, restraints and drugs were frequently used on residents, and the amount of drugs used in some units was noted to be extraordinarily high. As for the restraints, they could range from a resident being sent to a seclusion room to them being physically bound to a better chair. In one example, an 18-year-old spent six consecutive days in a seclusion room after assaulting another resident. Another female resident who faced extreme amounts of restraint due to staff shortages spent several hundred hours a month physically restrained. In August of 1976, it said that she was restrained for 720 hours, which is a full 30 days. According to what I read, this resident had actually blinded herself, and it wasn't until early 1977 that she was enrolled in occupational therapy, which significantly helped her self-harm problem. At the time of the suit, she was now able to be unrestrained for up to four hours a day, and it was believed that if her therapy had begun earlier, she would have had significantly less self-inflicted injuries. In another case, one teenage girl who had been blind as well as mentally disabled was left by employees strapped to a chair by a straitjacket, despite her being able to walk, 
so that employees could just keep track of where she was. Fucking, fucking horrifying. Imagine being able to walk around and they're like, well, we need to keep track of you and strapping you to a chair. That's so fucked up. So fucked. Injuries to patients were very common and sometimes caused by other residents as a result of bullying. In one severe case, a resident bit off three quarters of an earlobe and part of the outer ear of another resident as they slept. Another time, a patient pushed a second person to the floor, which resulted in their death. It wasn't just residents injuring one another, though. Some staff members were abusive as well. In 1976, a resident was raped by a staff member. Another was left badly bruised after being beaten with a set of keys, and one was thrown several feet across the room by an employee. On each of these occasions, investigations occurred, and the staff person who was responsible for the abuse was either suspended or fired. It was noted that, quote, There is not adequate space for the residents. The living areas do not provide privacy for those who could handle privacy. There's not seen to be adequate activity areas or program areas or even general activity areas within the general living area or even adequate activity programs away from the home living area. Some areas of the hospital didn't even meet minimal standards for cleanliness. Floors were found to have feces and urine on them and outbreaks of disease were very common. Most toilet areas didn't have toilets, soap, or toilet paper and were left in a filthy state leading to bad smells throughout the facility. Overall, the environment of Penhurst was found to not only not help residents learn new skills, but that it actively contributed to them losing skills that they'd already had. An example given was a toilet, a toilet training program. Residents can be trained on how to use a toilet, but then not be given any opportunities to practice their new skill, which they would then lose. Patients from their so-called high-functioning wards would be sent to the low-functioning wards as punishment for doing things that the faculty didn't approve of. Some verbal patients simply stopped speaking as noise level in the wards could be so high. Terry Lee Halderman, the original plaintiff in the lawsuit, had gone to Penhurst at age 12. After 11 years there, following both attacks and accidents, she'd lost several teeth, suffered from a fractured jaw, fractured fingers, and a fractured toe, with numerous cuts, scratches, and bites. Her medical records listed over 40 injuries over those 11 years. And when she was admitted, she was able to communicate with a handful of words that she knew, but by the time of the lawsuit, she was no longer verbal at all. While residents of Penhurst were voluntarily admitted to the hospital and technically free to leave whenever they'd like, as long as the staff didn't petition courts, which they were able to do, uh, thinking that they shouldn't be reintroduced to regular society. Many residents didn't have or understand their other options, so they just stayed at the hospital. Others who were physically unable to communicate that they wanted to leave would basically be given no option and assumed to consent to staying there. Naturally, there are many reports that Penhurst Asylum is haunted, though it's commonly believed that if there are ghosts, they're friendly and likely just residents looking for someone to communicate and tell their story to. There have been reports of slamming doors, disembodied footsteps and voices, sounds of vomiting and crying from empty rooms. One website reported to have recorded voices saying things like, we're upset, go away, and why did you come here? Another supposedly capturing a girl asking, why won't you leave, and a boy saying, I'm scared. Shadows have manifested from nothing and will disappear randomly. Some of the shapes caused by shadows appear to be a small girl with long hair, a hunched-over figure with long, dangling arms, and the upper parts of bodies looking around or above obstacles in their way. Rocking chairs have been seen moving on their own, objects have been propelled by no one, and some people have even claimed to be touched by what they believe to be spirits. One paranormal investigator claims that he was shoved from behind on a stairway and left with a deep red mark on his back. Another person was scratched on the arm while not being near anything or by any walls to injure them. The ghost of a lost little girl is said to roam the campus, and the spirits of children can frequently be heard playing or crying. Some witnesses have also seen the apparition of a woman in an old nurse's uniform. While Penhurst was eventually used at one point as a veteran's home, today it's privately owned, and several of the buildings have been demolished. 
Following this private purchase of the property, Penhurst was partially renovated and reopened as the Penhurst Asylum, a seasonal haunted attraction. There's actually a lot of controversy around the reopening of the hospital as a haunted attraction, with some people associated or sympathetic of the history, thinking that turning into a tourist attraction is in a way trivializing the things that happened there. Many people, including Baldini, the journalist who did the expose in the hospital, think that would be better for the site to be turned into a memorial instead for all the residents who suffered there. Despite all this backlash, as of today, you can still book daytime history tours, photography tours, and nighttime paranormal investigations at the Penhurst Hospital via the Penhurst Asylum website. Proceeds from these tours go towards upkeeping the grounds and restoring what buildings still remain. But yes, that's my story. Fucking abysmal how they treated people there. For real, though. So sad. I knew it was going to be a bad time when I was on the wiki and there was a section called uh, eugenics. And I was like, what <laughs> do you mean? And if anyone doesn't know what eugenics is, uh, I mean, according to the Internet, I'll just read that. It's the study of how to arrange reproduction of the human population to increase the occurrence of heritable characteristics regarded as desirable. A lot of it is just very unscientific and racially biased. Like, this is some shit that, like, Nazis wanted to do. It's it's not good. It's not good. If you hear eugenics, it's not a good time. Let's just say that. <laughs> yes, that is it for my haunted hospital story. Damn. So. Have anything else to I'm just going to say these damn hospitals sucked back then. Do they do? And I read about a lot more. We'll have any more in the future. For real. But um, no. Okay. Well, if you guys would like to email us at all, you can at the spooky shit dot pod at gmail.com. Our Twitter and Instagram are spooky shit underscore pod, and our website is spooky shit dash pod.com. Thank you guys all for listening. Really, really appreciate it. And we will catch you all next week. Goodbye. Goodbye. I beat you. Hee <laughs>